So one of the awkward conversations is to talk about money in church. We're not afraid to do that. Uh, but when you came in today, there was this blue card on your seat that says, yes, I want to participate in the 90-day tithing challenge. Well, we do this once a year. And what we do is we understand something about money, and we learned this from Jesus. Jesus said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart would be. In other words, what he means is there's a line, a string, if you want to call it that, between your wallet and your heart. Wherever you put your money is where you put your heart. And so we say, okay, this is a way that you can become a generous person. In our city, we want to be about blessing and serving our city. And uh, I've had conversations with the mayor. I've had conversations with people who uh, are in charge of not-for-profit organizations in our city. And very frankly, in our city, at least, um, philanthropy or giving is very, very low. And we want to change that. Not, we're, not asking, we're not saying, hey, we want to get companies to give to our church. That's not what we mean. We want to see uh, all across our city people investing the, the money that they have in our city, building pool at the YMCA, building parks, having art, you know, all those kinds of things. And we want to go first. Like, if you want a generous boss and a, you want to work for a generous company, be a generous person, right? Do you want to work for a stingy boss? Raise your hand if you... Yeah, no one? Okay. Everyone wants to have a generous boss, and we want to go first. We want to be the first ones to do this. This is just a way for you to, to, uh, to jump in and say, I want to try this. And I said it to you last week. Um, this is one of those things that's a, an act of trust. My family does this. We live on 90% of our income. You're invited to do the same. And if, if, if during the 90 days you say, I'm gonna, you're going to do this, and you can't pay a bill, uh, you come see me. Okay? We're going to make sure that you're taken care of. But if you want to do this, fill this out. It's a spiritual decision. We're not trying to get you to do it right away. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk about it. Um, only I will communicate with you, and I won't send you spam. Okay? How about that? Good? There we go. There's that. And then on your other card you got when you came in is this little Easter card. Easter's in two weeks. Now, you know people uh, who on Easter Sunday have this sense of, hey, I think I'm supposed to be in church, and we want to always be uh, opening the doors to people who are away from God, who don't have God at the center of everything that they do. And Easter is a fantastic opportunity to bring someone with you. So you can take this card. It's an invite. It's got our address in minuscule type. That was my fault on back. But you can tell them because you know where it is, right? You can get them here. There's more cards at the Start Here booth, all that. But these are just a tool for you to help invite some people. Cool with that? I guess not. That's great. Uh, <laughs> my name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in the middle of a series talking about temptation. We're actually working our way all the way through the Gospel of Matthew in 2016, and we're talking for several weeks about out of Matthew chapter 4, uh, if you have a Bible you can turn there, about temptation, and we're talking about, we talked last week, this week, and the next week as well, the three big temptations that the ancients said everyone struggles with. Uh, the person to your right, the person to your left, the person behind you, the person in front of you struggles at some level with these temptations. And now you may say, what do you mean by the ancients? Well, what I mean by that is uh, we're not the first ones to have the human experience. One of the, arrogance, or the arrogant thoughts about our day is we think we're the first ones to experience anything and no one before us has any wisdom or insight into how to live the human experience. And we're not. We're not. It's actually kind of a dumb thing uh, that someone would do when they would have experience and learning right in front of them and ignore it. So if you're at work and someone knows more than you, Humble yourself and learn something from them because they have something to teach you from their experience. And what we're doing is we're learning from Jesus. Our understanding is that Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. Now, you may not be a Christian. That's a very common sentiment even among people who are not religious or, uh, uh, or a Christian. And, and we believe that Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever lived. And so you have in front of you learning that you can take about uh, how to avoid mistakes that will ruin your life. And so that's what we're doing in this year. 
Well, Matthew, right here, he's talking to us about the temptations that we'll face, and he says that the one who brings the temptations to us is the devil. Uh, the Greek word there is diabolos, the, means the accuser or uh, the, the tempter. And what we're doing as we walk through these, this uh, passage in Matthew chapter 4 is we're getting insight into the strategies that the devil uses to tempt us. In fact, Paul says it like this when he writes a letter to the Corinthians. He says, listen, um, we are not unaware of his schemes. The word there, schemes, is a, a, a blueprint or a strategy. In other words, he says, we're cognizant, we're, we're aware, our eyes are open about the ways that the devil tempts and ruins people's lives. Now, when John uh, talks about this in his gospel, the way he describes the devil in John 10.10, 10, he says, Let's listen, the devil comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the devil. Uh, if, you've talked to a, if you've listened to an interview with an actor who plays uh, an evil character or the devil, they'll always tell you it's easier to play the evil character than the good character. But, you know, when you see uh, the devil portrayed on TV, I think there's a series out now. I don't know if they canceled it. I know people were mad about it. But the devil always gets portrayed as this suave, sophisticated, insightful person who uh, is out to get you. Right? But the way John says it is, if you think that's what the devil's like, he's suave, sophisticated, he's the, the epitome of what we ought to be, you need to understand his only purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy from you. That's it. That's his whole, that's his whole purpose for being. Uh, you might say, well, I think the devil's a myth. Well, if I were the devil and I wanted to kill, steal, and destroy from you, you know what I would do? I would convince you that I was a myth. You'd never know. You'd never see it coming. Um, so what the devil came to do, though, is to kill, steal, and destroy, to kill your hope, steal your joy, destroy your life. Uh, the author C.S. Lewis, he said that, the, that hell, the, the road to hell, he said, is soft underfoot and with no sudden turns. What he, mean by, what he means by that is that uh, we don't know when we're on the wrong path. We think it's the best path, and we think it's the right path. I was uh, reading this week. It's kind of odd that I was doing this, but I was reading this week about how cows um, are slaughtered. Now, this is a metaphor. You're the cow in the metaphor, okay? Stay with me. Uh, when I was in college, I, I traveled for the college I was in, and we traveled into places you've never heard of, like Brainerd, Minnesota, and Red Oak, Iowa, and Johnson City, Kansas, and uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, places that just, just little out-of-the-way places we'd go and we'd represent the college. And uh, one of the places we would travel on a frequent basis was to western Kansas. Out in the western, southwestern corner of Kansas is Dodge City. If you've seen a western, you've seen stories about Dodge City. You know, get out of Dodge. That's where that comes from. Uh, today, Dodge is not so much a western town. There's a little teeny thing you can go there and you can do the old west thing, but it's a little teeny thing. But Dodge City is primarily a packing, uh, meat packing uh, town. And so when you come in, when you're miles away from Dodge City, you can smell Dodge City. The reason is, uh, when you come into town, you understand why. Uh, the, the hills kind of roll as you come into town, and as far as your eye can see on those hills, packed in, in tight proximity, are cattle. I mean, they're just everywhere. People in Dodge City say it's the smell of money. Well, uh, they, I, I found out in reading about this that they've changed how they slaughter cows. I mean, it used to be this kind of painful thing for the person killing the cow and this painful thing for the cow. You know, they'd take the prodder, and they'd have this whole, uh, that was a cow noise, I don't know. What, but it, they'd have this whole experience, it was, everyone hated it, and then they got wise, and they said, we can do this differently. And so what they did is they created this thing where the cow gets on kind of like a conveyor belt, and it's soft underfoot, and um, it's calming and they actually, the cow goes into what they call the squeeze chute, and this pressure comes on the side of them, and I think it's make, made to uh, 
uh, uh, make them feel like, you know, they're in their mother's womb, and so they have the, they're having these wonderful memories, and it's this wonderful thing. They're thinking about the time they were a baby cow, and someone loved them, and, and they're in the squeeze, and they call it the knock box, and then they're in this box, and they're enjoying it, and bam, right? Someone hits them right in the head, and they're dead. That's how they do it. They didn't know that it was coming. Now, again, you're the cow in the metaphor. You're welcome. Um, you're the cow. See, you, what happens with temptation is you cannot know that it's coming, and then it kills you, right? Because that's what the devil came to do, is to kill, to steal, and destroy. In fact, uh, um, John, one of Jesus' disciples, he says like this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. To, to take back from, from uh, the, the devil the, the destruction that he wants to work inside of your life. And so this passage that we're looking at is all about that. Now, some people might uh, say that the Bible is kind of, uh, kind of sugarcoats things, and, and if they say that, they haven't really read the Bible. Uh, but it doesn't. It's very honest. It's a very honest book. It's a very honest book about the human experience. It's a very honest book about what you can expect if you have God in your life. And, and this, this text right here, Matthew chapter 4, at the beginning of Matthew's manual for how to follow Jesus, says that out of the gate, one of the first things that you're going to experience if you follow Jesus is you're going to experience temptation and testing. See, some people paint a picture of, of coming to God and, and understanding the gospel as, okay, this is his experience. Everything's going to go well for you. You know, you're your marriage is going to be perfect, and your finances are going to be great. Your kids are never going to misbehave. And then life hits you, and you go, what happened? I thought God was doing, uh, doing the thing for me. And it's not at all. The Bible's honest. It doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat it. It says out of the gate, you're going to be tempted, and you're going to have a test. In fact, some of you, we've baptized you, and, and when you were baptized, you thought that when you went under the water that it washed everything away, and you were gonna, everything was going to be great from here on out. And it did. It, baptism is the sign that God has forgiven you of your past. But what you found when you came out is that you still had to face those people who took you down the wrong path and tempted you and to do things that were destroying your life and destroying your family. You find that you have the old habits and the old thought patterns, and, and you, you find out that the testing is what happens right at the very beginning of following Jesus. And so you got to understand that. So here's what happens. I'll put it on the screen for you in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, this is the temptation. We talked about appetite last week, and then this second temptation is right here. Then the devil took him, took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, what in the world is happening? That's kind of odd. What's going on? If you heard the first week, we talked about uh, the fact that temptation can happen to you anytime, any place. Because maybe you think that temptation only happens when you're driving down I-94 and you see those big billboards that I try and distract my kids from, like you're driving out, like to the, the clubs that say that gentlemen go to, which is not at all what gentlemen go to. Like, maybe you think that's temptation. It's in a time like that. Or, or when you're with somebody and they're trying to, they're saying, hey, let's go, let's go spend a whole bunch of money at the casino and waste a whole bunch. Of, you think that's temptation. Here's, here's what's happening. The devil takes Jesus to church. If you can be tempted in church, then you can be tempted absolutely anywhere. And this is, this is what he says to him. He says, if you are the son of God. Now, remember, we're not unaware of his schemes. Uh, this is the first thing, this is, it's, it, like, the devil has a playbook, and it's just the same things over and over again, and we continue to fall prey to the same things over and over again. And what the devil, the first thing he always does is he has, gets you to question what God says about you. So you might, have, you might think, you know, I, I'm a Christian now, and I'm a different person, and I got a different orientation in my life, and I'm moving in a different direction. And then the devil comes along and goes, really, you're a Christian? You? Come on, what you did last week? You're not a Christian. 
Or you might have been here when we talked about identity in that series a few weeks ago, and you I'm the son that God's always wanted, and he loves me, and he's pleased with me, and the devil comes along and goes, really? You sure he's proud of you? No, that's not the case. This is what the devil always does, is he, he comes and he questions, gets you to question what God says about you. So then he says this, he says to Jesus, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now what he says right here is a quote from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now here's what's going on. Psalm 91 is what's known as a messianic psalm. In other words, it's about the Messiah that is to come. If you read Psalm 91 later today, you'll see what I mean. It's about the, how God will rescue his Messiah and make him, make him uh, prevail. And, and the rabbis, the teachers in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, what they said about Psalm 91 is they said that when King Messiah comes, he will, I'm reading it to you, he will come and stand on the roof of the holy place. So everyone had this expectation that when the Messiah, the one that God sends into the world to make everything right, comes, he's going to be on top of the temple. So the devil pr- plays right into that, and he says, now Jesus... Come to the holy place. Now, what, why in the world does he take him to the roof? What, what in the world is this? What, what in the world is happening? Here, here's, what, here's, here's basically what's happening. It would be like if while we're sitting here, the roof opened and the sun came out. Thank God there's no snow. Uh, but the, the rain goes away. The sun comes out. And you see coming down from heaven, you see Jesus and the angels. And Jesus floats all the way down right here. I mean, like everyone here, if you're doubting God at all, you'd go, Woo, uh, Jesus, I don't, what was I thinking, right? What the devil is, is doing, he's doing exactly that. He takes him, the, the, the highest place where he was was about 300 feet. And if you know how that worked, there was a big courtyard where people would mingle outdoors. And at the, the high points of the season when people were there to make their sacrifices and do their acts of worship, there'd be thousands of people there. And, Jesus, and, and the devil says, now Jesus, what you need to do, because Psalm 91 says that this is what will happen. See, the devil knows the Bible. This is what will happen is, Jesus, if you jump, then his angels will take you, and you will float down, Jesus, in, in everyone's presence, and they will, you know what they'll do? The result of that will be, there'll be instant approval and validation about who you are. That'll be instantly be happening. Now, listen, I have never been tempted to go to a high place, jump off of it, believing that God will float me to the ground. If, I'm, if you ever see me in that place, something's wrong, please help me get help, Right? But you know what I have been tempted to do? I have absolutely been tempted to take a shortcut to get approval from people. Who doesn't want to be liked? Uh, the first place that I was uh, in ministry, I was on staff at a church. I was a youth pastor, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I've told you some of the story if you've uh, been here. I didn't really know how to lead. And, and so I was uh, getting ready to plan this trip for our students, and we were going to take them on this trip. And I uh, had all the details arranged. And these two guys who worked in a, uh, another uh, non-profit parachurch kind of youth ministry thing. Uh, they were a part of our church, but they were running their own show kind of, and they came to me and they said, I know you got this trip planned and you want the kids to go on this, this place, but we think you ought to go to this place. I didn't have the strength or the knowledge or understanding to say, no, we're doing it for this reason and thank you very much. You know what? I, I completely, I listened to them. I remember sitting in the car with them and they just laying into me about why I needed to do it and why it, it ought to be the thing that happened. And I caved. You know why I caved? I wanted their approval. Everyone wants to be liked. Now, this is the, the temptation we talked about last week was the temptation of appetite. This is the temptation of approval. Now, on the face of it, you might go, well, what's the big deal with that? Why, why are you saying that's a big deal? Well, and the ancients would say, it's always been a big deal. And I'll give you proof that this is a big deal in our day. We live in what people call a celebrity culture. I'll list some names for you. 
Um, and then I'm going to list one more name that you're not going to know, but I promise you, you know these names. Kim Kardashian. Jimmy Fallon. Leonardo DiCaprio. Lady Gaga. Now, I'm not making, when this next name, I'm not making a political statement. You'll never hear me from this stage say, this is the, Dem this is the party that you ought to vote for, or this is the candidate. I'm, never, I'm not making a political statement when I say this. It's an observation. But the fact that one of the people who's running for the highest office in our land really is running on the basis of his celebrity, the fact that he's known for something, says a lot about our culture and how we feel about approval. Right? Donald Trump. I'm not, again, I'm not making a political statement, so if you like him, okay. But let me give you another name that you're not going to know anything about. You, you ever heard the name Norman Borlaug? See, I, I saw one person nod their head. Here's who Norman Borlaug was. He, from the time he was little, he, um, he loved science, and he worked with seeds. And he produced, uh, he, he genetically modified wheat so that in developing countries it would produce a greater yield. And many people think that Norman Borlaug saved over a billion lives in his lifetime. Now, who do we... If you saw Norman Borlaug on the street, you wouldn't know him from Adam, would you? But if you saw Kim Kardashian, you'd be like, selfie, right? You, you, that's what you'd be doing because you'd, you wouldn't care about the guy who made this massive difference, but you'd care about the person who's known simply because she's known, right? Now, you could be, I'll give you an example. You could be going through the line at Town & Country today, and you could be getting your groceries, and there'll be these magazines right there. And um, a couple of the magazines, one of them's called Us Weekly, the other one's called People. Now, if you didn't know what these magazines were, and you don't know what these magazines, you might look at the title, Us Weekly, and go, huh, great, a magazine about us. A, mag a magazine about all of us together. What a warm, I, I would like to read this magazine. <laughs> or you might see People and go, oh, a magazine about people. Hey, I'm People. This must be a magazine that's going to tell me how to be a better person. Now, if you were to open the cover of either of those magazines, you would instantly find out those magazines have nothing to do with you. They don't care about you at all. It's about the famous people. It's about the people that are better than you, who if you were just like them, you could have the kind of life that they have. Uh, I researched this. Us Weekly, their ad revenue, the last year that they measured this, was $403 million. Not counting the sales of the magazine. People magazine, ad revenue, $1 billion plus last year. Now, here's what that tells me, that approval and validation is a billion-dollar industry in our country. Now, I'm just talking about two magazines. They're more than that. Now, here's the deal. When you're famous, see, the idea is that if you could just make it to that tier, then you would be somebody. And when you're famous, your identity is who people say that you are. Now, I'm, I'm talking about you, though. I'm, you're not immune, and neither am I. There's this thing today, now I, I said it in the first service, and they were kind of like, what? Because um, they tend to be a little older. How many of you uh, are here, and you normally are in the 9 o'clock service, and you forgot to set your alarm clock? We're so glad you're here in the 11 o'clock. Welcome, right? Um, but uh, there's this, this thing today um, that just proves this is an issue, right? You can go on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, and there's this little button you can click to show your approval of, what's, of the picture someone posted or the statement they made. What's the button say? Like, right? Like, I like that. In fact, they say that students today who have grown up in this, uh, that they're struggling. They don't know what to do about this with students today because they're getting their validation from the number of people who like their picture. And so they'll take a picture, post it on Instagram, and then they'll instantly go back and go, how many people liked it? Am I okay because a number of people liked it? Everything's more immediate now. Now, this used to not be the case. When I was a kid, uh, we used to go over to my uncle, my uh, uncle Kenneth and Aunt Billy, Aunt Billy Jean is her name, 
we called her Aunt Billy, and we would go to her, their house when I was a kid, and they traveled a lot, and um, they would go other, to other countries, and so when we'd go over, they would say, hey guys, tonight we're going to have a slideshow. I'd go, man, a slideshow, what is that? That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And so we'd turn off the lights, my Uncle Kenneth would set up his own, uh, his own um, screen on the wall. I was like, screen on the wall? How can you... And then he would get what was called the slide projector with the carousel slides. Some people in here are like, what are you talking about? But some of you are like, yeah. Like before, back in the day, right? They had this slide carousel with a little slide with a negative on it. And he would click, 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 and it would go down on the thing. And then he would click, 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 Remember this? Right? And then they would show these pictures. And we would just sit there with popcorn. And we'd be like, wow. Like my uncle Kenneth and Aunt Billy were the coolest people in the world. Like they were famous because they had all this stuff. Now this the stakes are, the, the ante has been upped because now everybody has access to a phone. Everybody has to take a picture. It has to be so much better for people to approve and to, be, to like you. See, some of you live at the end of approval, and you have to have people's approval of you. See, you get consumed by approval. Everyone's like this. I mean, that's why they say it's hard uh, going to school because peer pressure is all about, you know, who likes who and you're approved by who and who. But it doesn't change. I mean, you can be in the union and it's still an issue. You can be in an office, it's still an issue. You can be uh, uh, teaching a classroom, it's still an issue. You can go to the gym, it's still an issue because you want to be liked. So here's the question that you have to ask yourself uh, with approval is, whose approval do I need to really be okay? And what Jesus is saying, what Matthew is teaching us, is that we can have God's approval, and if God likes us and God thinks the best of us, then we're okay. It's all right. Now, I know that's a, a shifting, a moving target because someday it's this person and someday it's that group, and, and we don't really know what to do with approval, and so we don't know where to go with it. Now, what in the world does Jesus say to this? Here's this interesting answer that Jesus says. Jesus answered him, it is also written, he again quotes the Bible, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what in the world is he saying? That doesn't seem to make any sense on the face of it. If you research where Jesus is quoting from, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you would read it, you would read that it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa, which is a, a, uh, an event in the life of the people of Israel. And if you were to research that, you'd go to Exodus 17 and you would find this place called Massa where the people were thirsty and they cried out to God and to Moses and said, Give us water. And God says, Moses, you're going to strike this rock. Water's going to come out. But the people grumbled there and it says this, and they put the Lord to the test, saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the whole thing right behind Jesus' answer. Here's, here's, what, here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I already have, to Satan, I already have the approval I need. I don't need your approval or anyone else's approval. I already absolutely have it. I'm the son my father has always wanted. He loves me. He's pleased with me. I don't have to have anyone else say, oh, look, the angels are coming and they're lifting Oh, now we'll, now we'll like you. See, when you do this, this creates an incredible amount of power in you because you never again have to cave to someone's opinion of you. And it creates incredible amounts of freedom inside of you because you, you can never have to, again, wrestle with the self-loathing that comes from wanting someone's approval and being mad at yourself for caving again. It's power and freedom when you can do this. Now, how do we overcome this temptation? Uh, you, if you remember, we talked about temptation. We've said that temptation is what you feel when your desires try to overcome your pain without God. And so we've said to you every week, and we'll say it again next week, that the way you do that is you resist the temptation 
you diagnose your pain, and you love God. These are the three ways that you can overcome temptation. So each week we've looked at how you can do that. Well, I want to I give you what these mean. Resist, again, if you remember, is from James, Jesus' brother, in his letter. He says, listen, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. In other words, he's saying, if you apply it to this, submit to God's opinion of you, because if you don't, you'll submit to someone else's opinion of you. Now, here's the reality. All of us submit to someone else's opinion of us. Who is it? James would say, why don't you submit yourself to God's opinion of you? And, and then if you can do that, then you can resist the temptation to buy into someone else's approval of you. Now, Paul says it like this in, in his letter to the Christians in Galatia in, in the New Testament. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, if I was still beholden to their opinion of me, I would not be a servant of Christ. So you have to resist. But then you have to diagnose your pain, and then you have to... You have to love God. Now, uh, if you recall, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is quoted by Matthew in, later in, in Matthew's gospel, referring to Jesus, saying that Jesus will not, will not crush a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He's, he's gentle with us because it's so painful to not be liked. That's why when you think about junior high and that experience of, man, was I ever good enough in junior high? If you, if you had a bad experience, and most people did, it's still painful, right? It hurt. People didn't like you. But I want to kind of put these two together, and I want to, what I want to do is I want to read you a story that I think sums up diagnosing your pain and loving God. Now, I, I sometimes find that children's stories do a much better job of explaining to us things that we might not get on another level. And so I want to read you this story um, from Max Lucado about the stickerless Wemmick. Okay, so if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to pretend you're my kids, and I'm going to read you this story. I think you'll see why this can help you diagnose your pain and love God. Here we go. Uh, the Wemmicks were small wooden people. All the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli, and his workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes, some were tall, others were short, some wore hats, others wore coats, but all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each woman had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all over the cities, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the women gave dots. The talented ones got stars, too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some women had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around him and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then he would try to explain why he fell, and he'd say something silly, and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. And after a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would just give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had lots of dots, and he felt better around them. 
One day he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars, and she was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots, so they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, said Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Well, why don't you go find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. And with that, the Wemmick, who had no stickers, turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me, Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear, so Punchinello went home, and he sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop, and his wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench, a hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here, he said, and he turned to leave. And then he heard his name. Punchinello? The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a good look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on a bench. Hmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I, I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you don't need to either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think. And I think you're pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me special? Why? I, I mean, I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My pain is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker, and he didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks, said Punchinello. I know. She told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand, said Punchinello. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. Now listen, listen, you've got to do something about this, okay? These are the things we all struggle with. Some of you, uh, we talked about last week with appetite, you're, you're, you're destroyed by your appetites. You're your life is completely derailed. 
Some of you, you live every day needing someone else's approval to be okay. Every decision, every thought, every word, everything you wear is calculated by how it's going to affect someone else and whether or not they're going to like you. And if, if you say, well, I don't struggle with either of those two things, you come next week, I promise you struggle with that one. <laughs> but here's what you got to do. You got to do something about this. See, the temptation, this, this will ruin your life. You have, to, you have to change your mind about yourself and change your mind about how God sees you. The biblical word for this is to repent. You have to, you have to see it differently and say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be the same person. And so you have to decide, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to let temptation ruin my life. I'm not going to let the devil come and kill, steal, and destroy from me anymore. And you'll find that God was already there with you. And, and you know what happens? I'm, I'm telling you this the stickers begin to fall off. Yeah? Yeah, you want that. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you. God, so many of us in this room, um, we buy into the lie that says if we're somebody to someone else, then we matter. And we let them put a sticker on us, and we, f- we let them put a star on us, and we feel good about ourselves on some other human being's opinion. And so some of us are completely trapped by that. Jesus, thank you uh, that you're honest with us about what we're going to face, but that you also show us a way out. And you show us we don't have to be defined by what people think about us. We, we already have, because of everything you've done for us on the cross, rising from the dead, we have what we need. We already have your approval, and so we need no one else's. So we want that. So I pray for my friends this morning, God, as they change their mind, as they repent about their appetites, or they repent about their need for approval, and they they resist this temptation so that they can be the person you've made them to be. So we ask for that in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. I invite you to stand with me. We always leave you with a blessing, and uh, I would like for you to receive that blessing if you're okay with it. You'll see people holding their hands out. That's just their way of saying, I'd love that. If you're comfortable with that, great. If you're not, that's okay too, but just receive this blessing. Uh, May you know the love of God that makes you um, unable to have a sticker stick. May that love move you out to love the people around you without giving them a sticker. And may you be sent now to uh, serve uh, the world in Jesus' name. Hug somebody. Tell them you love them. Our prayer team's down front if you need prayer.